Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of James. James chapter 5. Our text this morning is just one verse. I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Just James chapter 5 and verse 12. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. I'd like to quickly just review the last few weeks and show you how this verse fits into this flow of thought. It just, it's not a standalone verse. It's, there's a reason it's here. Okay, You might wonder, uh, just last week we talked about the second coming of Christ. Why is he talking about telling the truth? Well, talk about the difference between worldliness and godliness. Okay? We got worldly wisdom, chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, versus godly wisdom. You got worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is a strategy uh, or a system of thinking that gives you what you want on earth. Your goals are on earth, and, and worldly wisdom is a system of thinking that gives you what you want on earth. Godly thinking has goals that are in heaven. So godly thinking is a strategy for giving you a, a reward in heaven. Okay? Then we get to chapter 4. We're talking about the essence of worldliness. And in verse 4 of chapter 4, we see that Adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. At the essence, worldliness is having idols in your heart, other gods other than God himself. Worldliness is a heart issue. Now it shows itself in how you behave, how you treat other people. If you're an angry person who tells people off, it's because you have idols in your heart. And it's easy. Verse 1 of chapter 4. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your own lusts that war in your members? Anger is a heart issue. And it reveals having idols in your heart. It's spiritual adultery. God is offended by it. If you're, if you're worldly, you have a problem with God. You are like you're waging war with God. Okay? Then we see worldly planning. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, verses godly planning. Worldly planning, you, you make plans based on what you're going to get in this world. And it, it, worldly planning is not necessarily planning to sin. Worldly planning is all about leaving 
what you really should be doing out. Look at verse 18 or 17. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If you're making worldly plans, you're leaving out your church life, you're leaving out ministry, you're leaving out what really matters in life. Because you're just way too busy with so much more important things to do in this world. See, that that worldly thinking at the base, that, that wanting the things of the world at the base of this worldly planning. Then we get into chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. It is a condemnation of those who live for the world, who have gained the world, the rich. Now this isn't a condemnation of all rich people. It is a a condemnation of rich worldly people. Okay? Verses 4 through 6, you got this indictment, these sins that these people were guilty of. These worldly people. Okay, so we're talking about specific, sinful, worldly people who are in control. And this message really wasn't about delivering it to these rich people. This message was delivered to Christians as an encouragement that people who give up this world and live for God are in the long run the winner. Where people who choose the world lose everything in the long run. Of course, then he talked about the second coming of Christ as the great equalizer. Christians, someday we will rule the world. The world will be ours someday. We can wait for that now. Okay? So then we get to verse 12. How does this fit? in this theme of worldliness. Well, I think in particular, he's getting to the very essence of what it means to be godly and what it means to be worldly. A worldly person really doesn't believe the truth of the Word of God. When it really gets down to it, A worldly person doesn't come to the light, as John said, or Jesus said in John chapter 3. He doesn't come to the light because his deeds are evil. He's not honest about his sin. He's not honest about his heart issue. To be saved, to become a Christian, one must be honest. One must To walk in fellowship after you are saved, one must walk in the light. That means walking honestly and openly and sincerely before God. God will not tolerate this refusal to admit sin, refusal to admit your need. God says, no, you cannot come to me until you are honest with me. That's how it fits in the text, okay? I don't know how many of you remember the program I, as a kid uh, to tell the truth, game show, okay? So they, they get, bring out this celebrity, not maybe real well-known, but the celebrity come out, and the, the contestants, uh, there'd be four you know, uh, contestants, and they would wear blindfolds, okay? And they were celebrities, uh, but they would wear blindfolds 
Then they would ask a series of questions. They were yes and no questions. The, contest, uh, the person that would be on the show would, would answer these questions with a yes or no. And they, would, they, they were designed to, uh, for, for the contestants to figure out who they were, you know, what they did for a living or, and who they were. Okay? Uh, and these, uh, these guests that would be on the show would have to tell the truth. They could not lie. Okay, but only with a yes or no answer. James tells his readers they are to tell the truth. Do you wonder why somebody writing a book of the Bible, pastor of a huge church in Jerusalem, and and now they've been scattered because persecution, and, and he's writing to these members of this church that have been scattered throughout all the Roman Empire. He's writing to these people who've been hounded and chased, to tell the truth. Why, why would he be telling these people to tell the truth? You wouldn't think that a pastor would have to tell his church to tell the truth, would you? Well, apparently James, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, thinks otherwise. Tell believers to tell the truth. There is no doubt in my mind that everyone here this morning hates lying in the lives of others. If, if somebody lies to you, you hate it. Yet how many of you shade the truth, make yourself look better, make others look worse than they really are. How many of us do that? God hates it. He hates it in you, he hates it in everyone else. Okay? Uh, let us examine this morning why we ought to tell the truth. First of all, there's this reproof of the oath. Uh, but above all things, my brethren, swear not neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath. Now, swearing here is not uh, profanities. I, I will say before I go on that I think God, taking God's name in vain is an absolutely obnoxious and horrible sin. I hope you don't do it. It is so commonplace in our world today, and it irritates me. God's name is holy. Don't make a commonplace. Don't make an explanation point. Uh, but that's not what this is talking about. It's talking about taking oaths. Okay? The need for oaths arose out of evil hearts. Matthew 5.37 But let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. What is he saying? Well, why do our courts require people to take oaths? I will tell the truth, so help me God. Okay? Why do our courts require witnesses to take an oath with the threat of the punishment of perjury if one is found to have lied? Simply because so many people have lied in providing testimony as to what another has done. Because it's so common, we make people take an oath. That's why it was started in Old Testament times. People had to take oaths because lying was so common. You got the illustration of Jacob and Laban. Okay, Jacob went down there, uh, went up the Haran area, and he served his uncle for 20 years. Seven years to get Rachel. He wakes up on his wedding night and he finds out he, he got snookered. 
He ended up with Leah, not Rachel. So then he works another seven years for Rachel. That's a 14 years. Then he works another six years for a herd of sheep. And every time Laban had a chance, he manipulated, lied, stole, or changed the deal that Jacob and um, Laban had. So then, finally, Jacob is leaving. He's going to go home. And, and he's got to sneak away because Laban is not about to let those sheep go and his daughters to go. And, and he, so he sneaks away during the night. And, and uh, then his wife, Rachel, takes the teraphim, the, the family idols. Now, she's not an idolater, I don't think at least, but, but they are also claim to the fortune that Laban would be passing on when he died. It was like the inheritance uh, documents. And, and uh, so she steals these and, and then they leave. And, and uh, uh, Laban comes home and finds out uh, the, the family idols have, are gone. Uh, Jacob is gone. The sheep that Jacob has are gone. His grandchildren are gone. His daughters are gone. Everything's gone. So he pursues with an army. And uh, God, during the night, tells Laban, don't you dare touch him. He's my servant. <laughs> you touch him, you're dead. So now they make this, you might say, compact, contract, a covenant. And, and they, they swear by the name of Jehovah God, that they'll keep this contract. What's, what's going on here? If thou shalt afflict my daughters, or if thou shalt take otherwise besides my daughters, no man is with us. See, God is witness betwixt me and thee. And Laban said to Jacob, Behold this heap, behold this pillar, which I have cast betwixt me and thee. This heap be witness, and this pillar be witness, that I will not pass over this heap to thee, and that thou shalt not pass over this heap and this pillar unto me, for harm. The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, the God of the fa their father, judged betwixt us. And Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Now, so what's going on here? Well, this is a promise, uh, an oath, you may say, is a promise that is binding and it brings God in as the witness. So in other words, if I break this oath that I make, I come under the judgment of God, not just you. I have not broken a contract with you as much as I have broken a promise to God. God is the witness. Okay? The Pharisees taught that there were certain oaths that were not binding and certain, uh, certain that were binding and certain that were not. Okay? So, um, the scribe had, had taken Leviticus 19.12 to mean that any oath that did not actually use the name of God in it was not binding. Now listen to Leviticus 19.12. And ye shall not swear by my name falsely, neither shalt thou profane the name of thy God, I am the Lord. Now so, the Pharisees take this verse, and in an ingenious way, they twist this verse to mean the exact opposite of what it means. 
This verse is basically saying, because you are a believer in me, don't you lie. Now, it means more than that, but that's in essence what it's saying. The Pharisees say, okay, this only means the only oaths that are really binding on you are the ones in which you use God's name. Okay? So they say, if I promise you something, but I don't make an oath using God's name, it's not binding. It's like I verbally say something to you, but I don't actually sign a contract. Or I, if I do sign the contract, I sign somebody else's name. I don't sign my own name. That's a trick some people use sometimes. They say, you know, they sign somebody else's name, and, and you look at that, and it's not their name. These are legal gimmicks that unsaved people play. And, and that's what the lawyers are, these scribes. They're, they're, they're looking for ways around the law. Thus, they would play legal games with people swearing by the temple or by heaven or by something else that would lead people to believe they had made an oath when they hadn't. Later on, they would do the opposite of what they had their neighbor believe they would do. If taken to court, the judge would find, find with them that they had not broken a binding oath. Yeah, no, no, it was not, not binding. He didn't swear by the name of God. He swore by the temple. Okay? Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22, you see Christ condemning this, this phony, hypocritical game that these scribes played. Woe unto ye blind guides which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold. And... Whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater the gift, or the altar that sanctifieth the gift. Whosoever therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things thereon. And whoso sweareth shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and by him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven sweareth by the throne of God and by him that sitteth thereon. All oaths are bounding. doesn't matter if you play this legal game or not. You're still a liar. The oath was an appeal to God as a witness and implied a curse if broken. Of course, if you don't actually call God into being a witness, then you can lie and God will not punish. That's the thinking of the Pharisees. Jesus and James contradicted this idea and called this a violation of the ninth commandment against bearing false witness. Okay? Notice what James is saying. Don't play this legal game. Don't play, don't play games with God's law. A lie is a lie. Okay? We are called to truth-telling. We're called to truth-telling. Verse 12, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea, and your nay, nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Now, I don't think this is actually saying Christians should never take oaths. There are some that would believe this. 
And, and uh, there's even a provision in our court system that if you're a, a witness and it's your conviction that you should not take an oath, that you can say, I affirm, rather than I swear. To me, that sounds like a legal game, too, okay? Um, the fact is, you know that if you lie in court, you're going to be punished for perjury, okay? So you tell the truth. As a believer, James is saying, though, you should just automatically tell the truth anyway. There should not be this threat to a believer. You tell the truth or you will be punished. Believers should be so transparent and so committed to telling the truth that our yeses always mean yes and our noes always mean no. That's the essence of what James is saying here. Christ's disciples ought not to believe, have, need crutches to get others to believe them. I ought not. I ought to be committed so to telling the truth that my reputation is my word is good. Okay? Some people make Christians sign contracts between Christians for protection, perhaps. But the essence here is that my word ought to be good for it. I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. And I'm known for that. Words depend ultimately upon what one believes about God and whether or not one values his relationship with him and is seeking his pleasure. Only the worldly manipulate through lying. That's how it connects to the portion. You remember you got the Ten Commandments came down on two tablets of stone. The first four were on one tablet. The last six were on another. The first four of the Ten Commandments taught Israel how to love God. The last six were how to love your fellow man. The last six arise out of the first four. Nobody, according to John, the book of 1 John, nobody can say he loves God unless he loves his fellow man. Okay? We love our fellow man because he's made in the image of God. And one of the ways we show love for one another is by telling the truth. Reasons for dishonesty. We're going to go through this real quick here. First of all, double-mindedness. James 1.8 says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Ecclesiastes 5.1 says, Keep your foot when you go to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Okay, so you got this double-minded man who one day is a, uh, committed to serving the Lord, the next day is doing whatever. He's back and forth, back and forth, Double-mindedness always shows two masters. And ultimately, according to Jesus, you cannot serve two masters. You're either going to hold the one and hate the other, or you're going to hold the other and hate the first one. You're either going to serve God, or you're going to serve yourself. Okay? So double-mindedness, here's an individual who's one week, he's in the church, and the next week he's out, he's, he's, he doesn't know. He, he's... Waving back and forth. That's the type of individual who's going to make promises and not keep them. 
Okay? Double-mindedness. The vow was a contract made to ensure God's blessing upon a certain course of action. One man would make a vow that if God would do something, then he would reciprocate by doing something else. Okay, God, if you do this, I promise I will do this. Then later on, as we see, the double-minded man would get what he wanted from God and then would doubt that God did it. He thus would not keep his part of the vow. How many here have been in trouble and you said to God, God, if you get me out of this one, I'm going to serve you. And then God gets you out of trouble. Oh, that, I didn't really mean that. Yo, of course, it was, it was a coincidence that I got out of this one. God didn't really bail me out. That's a double-minded man. He'll make promises and not keep them. I wonder how many here have prayed such. If you get me out of this one, I'll serve you, and then have forgotten. God condemns such folly. Rashness. Verse 2 of Ecclesiastes 5. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. Many never think when they make promises. Oh, yeah, I'll do that for you. You, know, you want people to like you? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll do this for you. Well, then it gets a little difficult. Uh, I, and you don't do it. Therefore, let thy words be few. Supply and demand means the more you say, the less value your words will have because of rashness. Always have your brain and gear when your mouth is moving. <laughs> That's basically what James is saying. Okay, Tell the truth. And don't make promises with your mouth that your body can't keep. We brandish the promise maker as shallow. Emotions and circumstances determine his promises. Then afterthought brings regret, and regret brings avoidance of liability. And James says, or Solomon says, defer not to pay it. If you make a vow, keep it. You, you, you make a promise, you do what you say you're going to do. Church members occasionally are those who through the emotion of the moment attach themselves to the cause of Christ, and then it never becomes a priority with them. Are these people truly saved or not? I think only God knows. In some cases, you know, they, they're rash, they're impulsive people. They make an impulsive decision, but they, it's not real. It's not, it has no depth. It hasn't dealt with real heart issues. Manipulation. That's, that's the, the Pharisees, okay? Here we talk of the lies of the scribes. They intentionally deceived those to whom they had made these sleazy oaths. Excuses, blame shifting, innuendo, half-truths, exaggeration are all subtle ways of making our position look better than it actually is so that others see things our way so we get our way. This is evil. Okay? The others are wrong. Okay, they're bad. But you can see somebody being rash, somebody being impulsive, somebody, uh, you know, just wanting everybody to like him, so he just makes these promises and then later on regrets it. But this is an individual who's calculating, deceptive, manipulating. And God hates this type of thing. Well, God hates all sin. 
But this is, this is more, more, um, more of an evil thing. There's financial manipulation. It, it, uh, Proverbs 20, verse 14, it is not, it is not, saith the buyer, but when he is gone, is gone his way, then he boasteth. Oh, because what I sold that guy. <laughs> that, that car had 200,000 miles on it. He, he paid this amount for it. I got, I'm shrewd. But you're also a liar. You also implied things about that car that were not true. Do Christians do this type of thing? You better believe we do. But just remember, it's a tool of the devil. Manipulation is a tool of the devil. Christians ought not to be doing this type of thing. Sometimes we lie because we got a worldly value system. And we're, we're getting closer and closer to the real bottom line in lying, okay? Whatever advances my cause is right. We value our own idol more than we do the smile of God. Psalm 15, verses 1 through 4. Lord, who shall I buy in thy tabernacle? What are we talking about here? We're talking about a person who has fellowship with God. Who is the person, who is the type of person who has fellowship with God? Listen to what David says. Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contempt. You have contempt for vile uh, people. But he that honoreth them that fear the Lord, he that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He makes a promise, and even if it hurts him, he's going to keep that word that he's given. This is the type of person who has fellowship with God. Lying, deceptiveness, manipulation, interrupts fellowship with God. Theological unbelief. And it, they go together. Okay, A value system is based on what you believe. Okay. Ephesians 4.25 Wherefore put away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Okay. Do you believe that you're in Christ and this person's in Christ? That you're both made in the image of God? This person has every right to the truth. And I must give that person the truth. I must speak truth. I can't lie. I can't manipulate. This person's my brother in Christ. You lie to people. You are denying this truth, according to Paul. Results of dishonesty. First of all, there's an erosion of character. Look at this. Fellowship with God requires walking in the light. First John chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light, in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. Are you in fellowship with God? Right now, are you in fellowship with God? Are you walking in the light? Or is there sin in your life that you're covering up? Walking in the light, we even get this idea of walking there so that you can see what's wrong with you and you can fix it. Confess it. Forsake it. People who claim to be Christians and walk in darkness are fundamentally dishonest in their character. 
And they lie. They pretend to be something they're not. They lie to others. Okay, so here, here's a step away from fellowship with God, being dishonest, lying. Now we, when we lie to others, there's an erosion of character as we begin to believe our own lies. Look at verse 8 of 1 John 1. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Now there's self-deception. We're believing our own excuses. We're believing our own lies. We've lied to others, now we're lying to ourselves. And we're believing it. At the judgment at the end of the tribulation period, call it the sheep and goat judgment, there's going to be people there who think they're believers. And God is going to, Jesus is going to say, depart from me, you worker of iniquities, for I never knew you. And they're going to say, oh, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Didn't we preach the gospel in your name? But they didn't. They thought they did. But they didn't. They believed their own lies. They were not honest with God. They were not sincere before God. They were phony. They were hypocritical. And they began to believe their own lies. And they are going to be shocked when they're told, depart from me, ye worker of iniquity. I never knew you. Finally, we call God a liar as our rationalization rather than the truth controls and dominates our thinking. Look at verse 10 of 1 John 1. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. To me, that's an erosion of character. First we lie to others. Then we start to believe our own lies. Then we call God a liar. That, that, those are three steps away from God. Does your life contradict his word? Are you living a lie? Secondly, there's condemnation. But let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. Now the Bible says, if we're in Christ, there is no condemnation. Romans 8.1 If I'm in Christ, I'm saved. Once saved, always saved, but truly saved. What is he saying here then? If you're not honest with God, if you're, a, if you're fundamentally dishonest, you're not a Christian. That's what he's saying. It, it doesn't matter much if you pretend to be one. I mean, most people thought the Pharisees were on their way to heaven. But the Pharisees were not on their way to heaven. I mean, they were the pillars of Judaism. Everybody thought they were on their way to heaven, but they were lost. Do you think people can sneak into the church who've never been saved? Do you think there could be people here this morning who are self-deceived? That you're living a lie? You're not what you pretend to be? Could you even believe your own lie and end up being condemned? Remember, when a person is a liar and a deceiver, he is condemned by his speech to be worldly. What, what's coming out of your mouth? What's coming out of your mouth? 
Remember what God thinks of worldliness. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. It was through deception that Satan caused the human race to be plunged into sin. It is because of deception that men remain enslaved to their sin. Think of God coming to the garden. And uh, he says, uh, Why are you Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve are hiding in the bushes. Where are you? Oh, we, um, we realized we were naked and we were ashamed and we hid ourselves. What did you do? Who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the fruit? Now, how many here think God didn't know where they were? How many here think for a moment that God didn't know what they had done. What were these questions all about? These questions were all about Adam and Eve facing honestly and squarely their sin. If you're not a Christian, you have to deal honestly and squarely with your sin. You have to be willing to admit that you are a sinner, that you are on your way to hell, and deservedly so. The Bible tells us that we must receive our salvation and by grace through faith. Believers need to see sin for what it really is, ugly and repulsive to God and the source of all the pain and sorrow of this world. Satan is the father of all lies, even as God is the source of all truth. Our tongues ought to be used to speak the truth in love. We are stewards of the gospel of Christ. Do not destroy your testimony by telling a lie or misleading others and manipulating and exploiting them for your own selfish causes. Believers, therefore, have no business using Satan's tactics to further their cause. Our life purpose ought to be to glorify God, and thus we will value how we go about our own business. If you have taken liberty with the truth, you have sinned. Confess that sin and learn to tell the truth. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for it because it is truth. It's honest about us. It tells us what we really are like. It shows us that. It's the mirror that opens up and shows us our hearts. Father, I pray first of all, if there's anyone here that's never been truly saved, perhaps they've church members, perhaps they've been attending church regularly for years, but they've never honestly dealt with their sin issue, never repented, never received you as Lord and Savior, never have thrown themselves on your mercy for salvation. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit even would reveal that situation, that condition to that person that's here this morning. I pray that there's no one here that has deceived him or herself into thinking that he is on his way to heaven when he's, indeed he's not. Secondly, Father, I pray for Christians 
I pray for us to be honest. Honest about our own sin. That we would be honest in our commitments. That we would do what we say we will do. That we would be committed to the truth. Lord, I pray for perhaps those that believers that are believers that are here this morning who have lied. And your Holy Spirit is pointing this out even this morning. Help us to confess our sins to you. And then help us to confess our faults one to another. Help us to restore those broken relationships because we have lied. Lord, I pray that we would walk in the light honestly, transparently walk in your word so that we have fellowship with you. Pray these things in Christ's wonderful and precious name. Amen.